Listener Production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer at The Motley Fool and the host of what is now not so new, a podcast called The Good Oil. Now, if you're new to The Good Oil, if we're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone The Good Oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff and the real stuff. And that's the very aim of our podcast. We're bringing you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Now, today's guest is someone who really knows what's going on and has approached it from a very novel angle, if you'll excuse the pun. Full disclosure, she is a colleague and friend, but far more importantly for our purposes today, she's intelligent, insightful, witty, and here comes the pun, an author. Of what you may ask, well, can I say, this is the funniest, least likely self-help book come biography I think I've ever read. And because she is both a writer and a business person, we're going to chat not just about her book, that will do a lot of that, and its subject, but also the business of writing and book publishing, especially in the age of Amazon. So the book is called Poe for Your Problems, and its author is Catherine Barb Magira. Welcome to The Good Oil Cat. I am so glad to be here. It's really fun to hear your voice again. Uh, it's, mate, we, uh, well, so Kat and I worked in Australia, oh, I don't know how many years ago, I'm not even going to try and count for, for uh, scary reasons. You're now back in the US, uh, but mate, same, I, I was just mentioning to you before we started recording, I haven't seen you or talked to you for such a long time, so it's an absolute joy to do it, but even better because you have produced such a great book. So here we, uh, here we go, I'm going to start with a confession, Kat, I, 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 have, I have shared this with you on email, uh, but for our listeners, full, full disclosure, full confession. Uh, Poe for Your Problems, of course, is about Edgar Allan Poe. And my confession is that before reading your book, I had never read any of Poe's work and I knew literally nothing about him. Now, that does make me a bit of a philistine. Uh, I, have, I have to say, though, it, listeners, if you don't know Poe or if you do know Poe, read the book anyway. It is, it is spectacular. Uh, but Kat, let's, let's start from the very top. Just uh, hypothetically, normally you ask questions to, you know, help the readers kind of get in on the subject. You're going to help me this time. Who is Poe and why should we care? Sure. So Poe was a 19th century American writer. He wrote horror. He's best known for poems like The Raven and short stories that are about murder and revenge, like The Telltale Heart or The Cask of Montiato. A lot of us encounter him in school, but if you haven't yet, I get how this could seem like the dustiest, most boring history. I think that nothing could be further from the truth, however. He he changed the world in innumerable ways and has enjoyed success on a scale that should interest any entrepreneur, or any artist. Um, one of my favorite data points is the fact that he is the only American writer with an NFL team named for one of his poems, like the Baltimore Ravens. No way. Also, is that literally where it comes from? Yes, that is. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Even Britney Spears named a tour after a Pope poem. So <laughs> how can we all achieve this kind of success? I mean, he's referenced everywhere from The Simpsons to South Park to Jordan Peele's movies. Uh, so, I mean, I think the question for you and me is how can one create this kind of intellectual property or IP that is more valuable 200 years later, even than it is when you do it? Uh, how can a person achieve that kind of influence? I love it, mate. That, and that's I, I, I'm loving you already talking about the business angle, which is which is spectacular because we're going to get to that. Um, I didn't read him in school, mate. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's actually taught in Australia. Or if it is, maybe it's not in the in the kind of general canon. I, I did kind of advanced English in high school, but I didn't come across Poe at all. Um, you said he changed the world. That's a that's a big call. So let's unpack that a little bit. How did Poe change the world in your view? Well, if you've ever encountered um, detective procedurals, like we have Law and Order here in the U.S. 
but anything from like Sherlock Holmes to Poirot to Agatha Christie, you name it. So Poe wrote the very first detective stories ever produced. And he also just adapted to the market in fascinating ways that I think artists can still kind of lean into. For instance, I mean, mm-hmm. he took commercial forms and just kept molding them and melding them together until he had created things like the detective story that the world had never seen before. Was it was it that novelness, which is not a word, but I just created a word. I'm sorry to do that to a writer. Um, was it was it the novelty of of what he created? Was it the way he created it? Was it the subject matter? Was it his style? Why did he make? Obviously, you know, it could have been someone else could have written the first detective uh, procedural that got lost in history because it was just rubbish, right? And maybe there is one <laughs> way back somewhere there. Um, but what what was it about him? Do you think that 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 kind of jumped into the the public imagination in such a dominant way? I mean, I think that's a, a really big question, but. Maybe the headline here is that his work concerns the greatest questions and deepest fears that human beings have. So he wrote about being buried alive. He wrote about actual torture scenarios. He wrote about the nature of life and death. And I think uh, if you want people to sit up and pay attention, you just go for the throat. You know, you don't mess around. Poe understood how and why people pay attention to stories. Um, And effective storytelling is still hugely important, even more so now than in the 1830s. Uh, I also think that his psychological insights and his stories especially, they ran way ahead of the theory of his time. I mean, psychology wasn't even a a discipline during Poe's lifetime, not formally. And some of his writings anticipate psychological theories that didn't even come about until the late 20th century. Finally, the other thing I would say about Poe, and this is kind of an encouraging message for the rest of us, that um, in ways his life was very scandalous. You know, he pissed off the right people, you might say. (laughs) And I think his career shows us that notoriety can work for you. The more bad press you get, maybe the more more lasting your work will be, which is kind of a positive message in a way. So let, let's can I, can I take you back to the the, uh, the let's talk about the journey of writing a book. I suppose let's start from the very beginning. You kind of have this idea and this suggestion, this kind of I think I'm going to write a book about Poe, and and maybe you had the sense of what it would be. Maybe you didn't. Maybe it evolved over time. When you start the the the, the process, and and knowing what you know now, it's maybe it would have been more fun to talk as we went through the process and see the highs and lows. But um, thinking back to to the. The, the expectations you had, the the realities as you saw them, the the thing, the, the way you thought it would roll out. Did you uh, was it was it a fully formed idea? And you went, you know what, I'm just going to write this and see what happens. Was it was there a sense of delusion of this will sell millions of copies? How do how do you kind of think through the starting process where you kind of say, you know what, I'm going to go and make a pitch for a book. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's what I want to write about. How, how does the author kind of cross that Rubicon to start the process? Yeah, um, so I have a real particular origin story. In late 2016, I'm sure everyone can remember what was going on in the world. I just, I found myself in a very down phase, right? I was just not feeling good at all. Had to take mental health leave from work. You know, it was just kind of a dark moment for me. And for the first time since I was a kid, I got the idea like, oh, I'm going to read some Edgar Allan Poe. And I found his work so comforting, which is not what people mostly say about Poe, right? And I started to dig into the biographies and start to get this idea that in a way he was kind of a hero, that he kept going no matter what life threw at him. And he produced this body of work in spite of what happened to him. And so one night I'm out having a drink with a historian friend of mine and I start to tell him all this. And I'm like, you'll never believe it. Edgar Allan Poe is cheering me up. And he said, (laughs) 
that sounds like a book. And I wrote the idea down. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to call it how to say never more to your problems. <laughs> and it was just a complete, you know, kind of throwaway punchline at the time, but I couldn't let the idea go. I kept sort of taking it over in my mind and coming up with aspects, you know, that I would cover if I were going to do a book. And then, um, well, I approached, so with nonfiction, you write what's called a book proposal, which is basically a business case about 10,000 words long about your idea for a nonfiction book. So then you approach agents with that and um, agents were very enthusiastic. I never had that kind of response before. A lot of people could see that this uh, could be a successful book in part because Poe's audience is so big, right? He has 4 million fans on Facebook. Uh, there are Poe fans all around the world. So, um, yeah, so there was a pre-existing audience for the book and that really helped the, uh, the sales process. Oh, that's cool. So you kind of had a sense that I made it resonated with you and B. There was a there was an audience for it. How much? How much of you? I, I'm curious. And again, because you straddle both uh, the literary world and the business world, how how does how did you think about the size of the audience? Would you have written the book anyway if it had been like this is a really super niche title? Maybe you'll have to self publish it on Amazon because no one really cares. Or, or did you kind of have a sense of if I'm going to write something, I want to make sure people read it. I'm going to make sure the audience is there. How did you kind of think through that in terms of making those decisions about what to write to satisfy yourself and, and the reality of the market you were selling to? Yeah, I absolutely looked at this from a business and marketing perspective. I can't not look at problems that way because I've worked in it for so long. And I actually think it's a really good framework for artists and writers to look you know, into. So I was thinking explicitly in terms of what you call conversion rates in marketing. So if Poe has 4 million Facebook fans, could we convert, that is, sell the book to 4% of those people? And that's, I mean, in book sale terms, that would be a hit. If you were able to convert even just a small percentage of existing fans, you wouldn't have to win every single person. But if you got even 1% or 2% would still be a success. So, yeah, it was explicit for me from the very, very beginning. Because you wanted to sell a lot or because you knew it needed to be a commercial proposition for someone to take you on or both? Well, in part because you, as a writer, you cannot have a career unless you sell books. Yeah. Uh, it used to be the case like back in the 1950s or something that you would get several chances to fail, right? If your first, second, third, and fourth books didn't sell, then you probably wouldn't get a fifth. And now, because the business is such, you're if you don't write a first book that sells, you do not get a second one. Um, but also I just think like, this is a message. I, I know it's satirical, but I also deeply believe in it. And I think yeah, it has a yeah. power to cheer people up when they're going through a tough moment in their lives or just make them laugh. And who doesn't need that? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Have I mentioned people should read the book, read the book. Um, so, so speaking of, of that process and kind of the, the reality, the business side of, of the book business, Break, break it down for us. Who, who makes the money? Where is this, where, you know, what does the structure look like? What does success look like? Um, I mean, as you say, everyone wants to be published. These days, anyone who wants to be can be published because of the ability to self-publish from Amazon. But really published, capital P published, is, is a whole different thing again. Um, just yeah, just take us inside the business of, of publishing, if you would. Yeah, for sure. So traditional publishing, that is somebody else publishes you, not your uh, self-publishing um, in the U.S., if you just think in market in terms of market cap, like that's worth around seventy billion dollars a year, and then globally, it's worth around one hundred thirty billion dollars a year. And I mean, one hundred thirty billion dollars—that's not nothing. 
it is dwarfed by streaming video and video games, that sort of thing, but it's still, you know, a corner of the world. And uh, one thing about the marketplace with this stuff is it's very, very winner take all. You have um, in the US, about 100,000 hardcover titles published every single year by traditional publishers. And on average, each of those sells 500 copies, which is a way of saying that individual books, right? Almost all of them fail. They either break even or lose money. But it's almost like you're running a portfolio because with publishers, all you need really for your year to turn to the green is like one Fifty Shades or one Harry Potter. So they make their money on the big winners and of the total sales in the industry, the big winners soak up almost all of those. So you have individual authors, only a handful of them who become very, very powerful. And then you have publishers who kind of make or break their year depending on the hit. Uh, So it's kind of a moonshot business that way. And I think you would say that the money tends to flow up, not down. Like most authors, anyone short of John Grisham or J.K. Rowling or whatever, um, they can't make a living from writing books alone. Uh, and it's good to be a shareholder <laughs> if you can swing it. Less so an author, right? This is why I, I, my eggs, in terms of my own financial basket, my eggs are with Amazon stock, <laughs> not my own book sales, even though I believe in them, obviously. Yeah, that's that's an amazing that's an amazing story. It's fascinating. You know, I, I had 500 copies average is, is mind-blowing. It, you know, you think about the book publishers as traditional business, and it's probably changed. Sure, it's changed over the last 20, 30 years uh, with the advent of online and everything else and other, 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 other demands for our attention. But that moonshot business, I mean, it sounds more like a, a venture capital fund. You, know, you mentioned a portfolio, and I thought about it you know, as, a, as a concept. We talk a lot about, you know, the, the one Facebook and the 19 flameouts for, you know, for, a, for a VC fund. You don't think of publishing being exactly that model, but it sounds like, again, I can't think of two different, or from the outside, two more different sounding, feeling businesses, industries, but yeah, they're they're effectively a VC style approach rather than lots of decent successes. It's like, we better have a good one because the others are going to stink and and we're stuck somewhere in between. Yeah. I mean, this is why it's good to have a business background when you're trying to uh, sell a book to a publisher because it's a business case. You're basically asking them to take on the financial risk of the book. In terms of, in terms of the, 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 the retail publisher kind of dynamic these days. Obviously, Amazon's the big name. Uh, there are some other book publishers around. There are lots of independent publishers and retailers. Uh, Australia, I'm sure, is the same as the US from that perspective. Where does where does that sit? Is it is it is it the same in the book publishing business as is it, as an author? Are they are there you know lots of little publishers these days, or has it all been consolidated up to to a few? And then how do the publisher retailer dynamic work to the to the extent you know? Yes. Uh- Well, again, this is the U.S., but it tends to be true of the rest of the world. Uh, We have what we call the big five who are soon to become the big four. And those are the largest publishers in the U.S. and arguably the world. Um, I say big five becoming big four because the players, you know, your Simon & Schuster's, your Random House, your Hachette, they're all consolidating very, very quickly. And you will not wonder why. It's because Amazon has become so powerful and is controlling such a huge chunk of the book market these days, and in some ways is able to dictate prices to publishers. So publishers are responding to that threat by consolidating and to the point where the Justice Department is looking into some of these mergers. I don't think that that's necessarily necessary. I think it's quite understandable how the publishers are acting. Um, And that doesn't necessarily like limit opportunity for authors either. But um, 
yeah, it's kind of that winner take all aspect. Then you still have, you know, your smaller presses. You have a number of independents who are kind of midsize um, in the U.S. That's like a source books, a quirk books. And then you have a um, publishers that aren't necessarily like running a for-profit business, a lot of university presses or things that are run on grants or that sort of thing. And how does that play out for authors? You said it's not necessarily bad for authors. And I'm, as you were describing, I'm thinking of the of the movie business, of, of the gaming business, and it's kind of just business in general, right? You, you go through these phases of consolidation. Uh, there are fewer newspaper companies. There are fewer, you know, it's, it's just kind of, it, it tends to be the way these things work. Even software companies, the same thing over time. That consolidation it helps them compete up the chain, as you say, with with the retailers, and obviously Amazon's the big dog in this in this fight. What does it mean for authors? It, it, does it result in fewer books being published, or are they just simply more financially able to absorb the risks across that book publishing approach? You know, the, the big guys obviously want to be able to to you know take some costs out and compete, or to uh, negotiate more effectively with Amazon. Does it have an impact downstream for for authors and others? You see a lot of people worrying that it will. Uh, I don't know that it's going to change things, the consolidation in the industry. One thing Poe's life will teach you is that artists have always had it tough and that publishing has always been a business. And I think if you approach it from an angle of understanding business, then you tend to do a little bit better. It's imagining that these things take take place outside of a market and outside of marketplace realities. That That's where you get into trouble. Um, I will say that I think publishers are probably more risk averse than they used to be. And that's simply because their, you know, their jobs are tougher. I sound like an apologist for the industry. I just think that the, the phenomenon financially going on with these companies is completely understandable. It's uh, it, I, I'm reminded if you say risk averse, I'm reminded was it was it J.K. Rowling had was it 19 publishers said no before the final one said yes or something like that. There is some there is some story that Harry Potter maybe never exists had she not been so persistent and maybe I mean that's well that's what 20 years ago ish now already you know. I mean, my book was turned down by probably 20 publishers too. Uh, yeah. It's just finding yeah, the right fit. <laughs> and also, yeah, you're right. Persistence is a huge amount of this game. I mean, it's the same way some little tiny startup will approach different VC firms. Mm-hmm. They're probably not going to convince Sequoia out of the gate, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It makes sense to work up to something. Um, let, let me go to our favorite questions, if, if I could, Kat. Um, just the ones at the end. I've, I've stolen these shamelessly from, uh, from another podcast, Masters in Business. So, Barry Th- Ritholtz, thank you for the idea. Um, uh, you're, you are an author, but you're also an, uh, an avid reader. What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you streaming? What are you listening to? What's what's kind of taking your leisure and entertainment time? So I'm reading two books at once, like I usually do. And the first is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. This is going to be a familiar okay. name to a lot of people. Yeah. The thing that interests me about Frankenstein is that book still sells 40,000 copies a year, though it came out in 1816. So, you know, if you wonder about that kind of longevity, what can we learn so, and also I just enjoy the novel. And then the other book is kind of related. It's um, a book called Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday, who's written tons of books on marketing and strategy and stoicism and all sorts of things. He's such a fantastic creative and marketing mind. Um, I highly recommend all of his work. But Perennial Seller is good because it's about how to create IP that sells year in and year out. And it's not divorced from artistic goals, but there's definitely a marketing aspect to it. Fantastic books should definitely have more readers. I'm going to break my own rules here. I'm going to ask another question in between our 
four questions because I am curious. You mentioned reading those two books and, and in both senses, particularly in Frankenstein, you said, look, it fascinates me this book is still being sold. Can you be an author and and actually still enjoy books for their own sake? I, I, I worry about, you know, I, I've often said my wife's an English teacher and the ability to kind of switch off the English teacher brain of, you know, what, what structure are they using here? What, you know, analyzing the book versus just actually enjoying the book as a, as a consumer, as a reader, just, just for the sheer entertainment value of it. Do you have that problem or can you have both sides of your brain working independently and still enjoy the book for its own sake as well as acknowledging or understanding what's going on in the background? I totally have that problem. One of my great life fantasies is going back to how I was able to read as a kid and a teenager with just total absorption. I miss that. Um, yeah, I can't stop thinking through like, oh, you know, what is Shelley thinking of audience development? <laughs> or, or whatever, like how is perennial seller? Is it, is it, is it itself a perennial seller? So, yeah, right. Exactly. Know. Exactly. Nice one. Hey, uh, back to back to our questions. This is just a general one, but you're again because you got your eye on so many different parts of, of the world, the business world, the artistic world. What trends have you got your eye on? You can do anything that running your, your job, day job, your your writing business, anything across society, economy, the world. Um, what's what do you got your eye on? What's what's moving and shaking, and what are you sort of watching with interest? One just totally plain trend is the beatdown in especially U.S. tech stocks, Fang. Um, watching all those stocks sort of just, you know, fall for the first time in years, way off their 52-week highs. Um, yeah, I've been looking at those with an investor's eye. Um, and then in terms of like a larger like macro trend, I'm really interested in the creator economy and this burgeoning class of substackers, YouTubers, TikTokers. Um, I think we probably are seeing a genuine and massive shift in how people think about work. And at the same time, I kind of, having been around the block a bit, just ex- expect the age-old economic trends to prevail in this you know newish market, and I think kind of again looking at it as an investor, like you know when there's a gold rush on, maybe you go for picks and shovels. So who is likely to win? I think probably not individual creators, maybe the platforms themselves. So that's where I, uh, that's sort of where my eye goes. Interesting. I like that. Do you have a, Do you have a sense of who you think will win? Is it? You say platforms generally. Are there Are there particular companies or, or concepts you're keeping your eye? Yeah, I mean, most of them are private. Beyond the obvious, like your Google, your Facebook, um, that sort of thing, as plays on say Instagram or YouTube. Uh, I'd like to see Substack uh, have shares in the public market. Right. Nice. I like it. Uh, what advice? This is interesting, given the, given the book you've written. What advice would you give someone who is interested in becoming a writer? Run! No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, a lot of people say books are going the day, the way of the dodo. I don't necessarily think that's true. It can be a challenging line of work, but I also think writing books can be a great thing, especially if you're able to broaden your sense of the IP and the formats for your IP. A newsletter post is IP, a YouTube video is IP. Uh, you don't necessarily want to put all your eggs in one platform or genre or method, you know, because if any, if the last 10 years have taught us anything, you know, tech and trends are going to just change constantly and you want to sort of stay flexible. I'm going to assume as a, as a writer, as a published author, as a successful published author, you're going to say to someone, if you've got a book inside, you're just going to have to get it out, right? Is, is, that, is that also true? Or would you say to people, just make sure there is something there before you commit time, effort, and energy? Is it just something that has to come out regardless anyway? It is a kind of doom, I think. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. It totally depends on what you're trying to get out of this. Fame and fortune are unlikely to result. <laughs> way, more, uh, way more likely are drug and alcohol problems and financial problems. <laughs> and some books um, you can give to your mom and say, look what I did, mom. Yeah, so calibrate your expectations. But, you know, <laughs> spending that kind of time and realizing a vision, bringing it in, into the world so that it exists, that is tremendously rewarding and I recommend it. Awesome, Kat. My last question is a funny one in the context of Poe and, and the book you've written, but uh, as you say, it is, is largely satire. I'm an optimist by nature. My, my, my last question is always, what are you optimistic about? I think I'm an optimist too, maybe incurably after the last few years. <laughs> um, I'm very bullish on medical breakthroughs in our lifetime and gains in lo- human longevity over the next 100 years. Uh, speaking of longevity, I think Poe's work, if only for the Lindy effect, is going to survive for another couple of centuries. I think McDonald's fish fillet is here to stay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, I think I think Taylor Swift has another good couple of albums in her. I'm relying on it. So that is a lot of reasons to be optimistic, Kat. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation almost as much as I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Um, please go out and grab yourself a copy of Poe for Your Problems by Catherine Barb McGuire. We will put the link in the show notes, but Google it, Amazon it, do whatever you need to do. Grab yourself a copy. I promise you, you will enjoy the book. You will thank me for doing it and you will wait with bated breath as I am for Kat's next book. We'll see what that might be. But in the meantime, come back next time for us, Kat, when you do release that book. But in the meantime, thanks, Catherine Barb McGuire, for joining us on The Good Oil. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden and imaged by Link Kelly. Listener.